Hello and welcome to the Data IQ podcast. I'm David Reed, bringing you interviews and insights from the data and analytics industry. Coming up, I talked to Nikki Klein, until recently Chief Data Officer at DirectLine Group, about what the role of CDO means and the skills it requires. I think that Chief Data Officers are a bit of a Swiss Army knife of a role. After that, I talked to Anthony Morris, formerly Director of Data Analytics and Insight at Dixon's Carphone, and what he has learned from over a decade there about what it takes to transform an organization using data. I definitely avoid, I think, the temptation of decoupling analytics from the business, particularly as the data sets grow. And finally, I spoke to Charlie Glynn and John Hoops at Ordnance Survey about the newly relaunched OS Data Hub and their hopes for the innovation it might help to unleash. So first, Nikki Klein has had a stellar career which has tracked the growth and maturity of the data industry. As she looks for her next big opportunity, we talked about the changes she has seen over her time at Dunhumby and DirectLine Group, and why creating a data strategy is not an endpoint, but a starting point for a CDO. Okay, so Nikki, first of all, can you tell our audience something about your career and the places that you've been working in? So I've been working in data and analytics for uh, over 20 years. So when I started out, it was very much a fledgling industry, really. So I joined just right at the tail end of the, the 90s. It was October 99 when I um, had my first role at, at Dunhumby. Back then, organisations tended not to work with their own data other than to, you know, run their accounting systems. The whole sort of idea actually behind the Dunhumby business was that there's so much value in an organisation's own data, if only people knew how to get the value out and act on it. Yeah, I was there for 18 years and did various roles. And for my last six years, I was on the exec team and it grew to quite a big business globally. Um, So we're in over 20 markets by the time I left and it's still, you know, a a leader and successful business. I moved on um, and switched industry actually and moved into insurance for three years. And I was the first chief data officer at the direct line group where I was at up until earlier on this year. Over the last 20 years, really, data and analytics has gone from um, a capability, let's say, that organisations tended to um, partner with an external company to bring in that knowledge and that skill set and work together on the you know, opportunities they had for it within their business using their data. And now, of course, it's very much at the heart of every business and, and their strategy for growth and success in the future. So um, it really had undergone its own transformation, actually. You mentioned being a, the first CDO in Direct Line Group. Was there a particular trigger for them deciding they needed to appoint someone into that role? Yes, I think that the uh, the real trigger for it was that clearly it was a very data-driven organisation already. All insurers are by the nature of the business. But what they were really trying to achieve is to have a leader within the organisation who really had accountability for all aspects of data and analytics because it, it can be quite a disparate discipline and for other leaders in the organisation they may have slightly different views on what is involved and what's needed. So I found, certainly as a first CDO, that quite an important part of the role is connecting up the organisation around what the data strategy is and what the capability is and what the outcomes are going to be. I think that's quite common for a first CDO role. 
So from your experience there and obviously at Dunhumby and, and seeing how its client base was developing those capabilities, within the context of a transformation, have you learned things about the way organizations should change in order to start that adoption process of data and analytics? It is really important to be led by um, a goal that has a commercial outcome to it because that really is the driving force and the sort of unifying force behind a data strategy. Um, nobody really wants a data strategy. They want the outcomes <laughs> that it brings. And, and that's as it should be. There is generally quite a lot of not very sexy um, foundational capabilities that are needed to be successful with data and analytics. They aren't the sort of the AI use cases that, that most sort of leaders are hearing about and, and want to talk about. It's all the stuff around, you know, getting your data in order and good data governance and a platform that provides access and to be able to push analytics into production, that that kind of stuff that needs to be in place. And so the role of the CDO as well is to, um, as well as sort of championing the the outcomes and and getting people excited about what is possible to make sure that those foundations are, are, are put in place as well. The other really important aspect of it as well is the whole people side and um, ensuring that the organization is set up to attract and retain the type of talent that you need to be successful in that space. I'm interested in what the CDO skill set now has to look like because it, it can seem huge. <laughs> it can include everything from getting the data plumbing right through to mm. pure management in a sense. If you are running a, a large team of, of analysts and, and data yeah. managers, that's that's complex. And it's not necessarily where people start in their careers, is it? No, it's not. But um, I think that is often what is needed. And I do think that chief data officers are a bit of a Swiss army knife of a role. You've got to sort of have quite a lot of, you know, talk tools in, in the kit, because you do need to know your staff on the technical side, at least well enough to be able to build the team and set the roadmap to, you know, actually build the capability that, that is needed. You don't necessarily, depending on the size of the organisation, you don't necessarily have to be the one that executes that yourself but I think on the on the people side in part the role is about educating people across the organization but I think the other part of it is about um, motivating and bringing that energy and that um, sort of inspiration as to what is what is possible so being able to communicate what can sometimes feel like uh, complex technical to bring it down to something that actually sounds very practical and makes just good common sense so I think being able to translate is is key how have you approached building your skill set in that domain well I think it's something that I've learned over time and certainly the first half of my career if not more was about working with clients normally large grocery retailers, to help them to understand how data and analytics can help them to make better decisions. And actually, on the whole, they were not really that interested in what went on behind the scenes. They wanted to know what was possible, how how they could use the data. And and most of the time, people who are leading a, a business want to talk about the challenges and the opportunities of the business. And I think the job of the data leader is to understand those and then sort of take that away and work with the team to figure out what the solution is. And I don't think you always need people to understand it end to end. Therefore, I think that sort of commercial leadership and communication is is just as important. I think the other aspect to it is that 
none of this is successful without a strong team and different people in the team play different roles. So I've always worked with really strong technical people, whether they're data engineers or data scientists, who really understand in much greater detail than I do what what it takes to execute. And my job is really, as as a CDO, to um, bring that together, help to communicate it typically to a senior audience, but then to orchestrate the execution, not only within the specialist team, but within the other business areas so that they understand the role that they need to play and they can then play that successfully. Do you see that maturity path as ultimately leading to the point where you no longer want a distinct CDO role because the business itself has has absorbed so much and now operates in a data-native way? I think that's absolutely an outcome that could happen. I think, again, it, it depends on the organisation. And I think we're still quite early on in the life of the CDO role to really see how it will play out. But I certainly think that for those organisations that are the most mature, the data leader role within the organisation becomes more of the chief data scientist, where actually it really is the person with that deep, knowledge particularly as well in organizations that are you know data native let's say their their data leader would be more of a data science leader rather because they don't need that sort of transformation and connector because they've they've had that from the beginning that approach and i wonder if any of that signposts what the next step is for yourself we talked about your career um looking backwards but looking forwards what's the next challenge that that you want to take on Well, what I really like to do is I like to um, sort of take big ideas or or big challenges and and make them happen. And I've always done that within a data and analytics context, Um, but I haven't always been the CDO. So it may be that um, I continue to be a CDO for some time and help an organisation to progress and, and drive value from data. Or it could be that I play more of a general leadership role in a more data-driven organisation because that's what, what I've done before at um, back at, in the Dunhumby days. So I'm still in the sort of early days of figuring out what, what next. And um, I think that the good news is that despite everything that's happening at the moment, there's still um, a great demand and great opportunity in, in the data space. So from that, do you, do you think there is such a thing as the ideal data organisation that if you put people in the right place with the right reporting lines, that's going to be particularly successful? And if that exists, you know, do you have to get it right from day one or, or can you go back and sort of optimise it once, once you've realised what the requirements are? I'm not convinced that there's an ideal organization because it needs to fit in with the organization that exists and and they're all different and it needs to fit the context so at what at what point at what stage is you know the organization at however I think there are some characteristics that do need to be in place for um, a successful um, data organization within a bigger organization and I think that's really about um, integration because I don't think that um, the data and analytics community can have the most impact and be the most successful if they are sort of separate and a bit isolated. I think that the model that I've seen work best is where, although some of the foundational elements are perhaps managed centrally, that those teams work in a very connected way, either with the business units that sort of own the outcomes and the customer relationships, or 
with the technology teams that are sort of more owning governance and, and capability on that side. So it has to be very well connected in because otherwise people don't understand it and it can't really drive the change that um, it needs to. What we're seeing is that um, most organisations, if they haven't already made this change, are, are moving towards operating in a more integrated way with teams that combine lots of different skill sets or working together um, to deliver a specific outcome that they own. And um, I think that's a really positive move. And I think that's the right environment for data and analytics. Now, Anthony Morris has spent 10 years at Dixon's Carphone, developing the data and analytics capabilities and building the data literacy of the organisation. As he moves on, we talked about the nature of data-driven transformation and what it takes to be successful. Anthony, firstly, you've been leading a significant transformation at Dixon's Carphone in its use of data analytics for nearly a decade. Can you give us a sense of that journey from where you began to where you've reached now? It's been a really interesting journey. Uh, when I first joined Dixon's, there was no central analytics team. And whilst there were a lot of analysis being performed across different functions, there was quite a bit of uh, duplication and some inconsistencies. Uh, so we had data dispersed across the business in many different silos. And the starting point was really to try and prioritize where um, we could get more value from the data. And we started in areas where we could see the greatest cash, like pricing, marketing effectiveness, uh, some of the store location and transformation work. And then over time, we sought to standardize our approaches and methodology, for example, putting in, a, in place a more consistent approach to experimentation. And that, I think, was a good example of where we built a tool centrally and then pushed it across the organization so many different functions could tap into that capability. And over the last few years, we've really consolidated our data and brought together some of the complementary teams. So my team now has four kind of key parts, um, which is analytics, insight, business intelligence, and, and data. And they sit together, I think, really well. Uh, and that team is now over 100 people. Ten years ago, we didn't know what the world was going to look like. And over that time, Dixon's merged with Carphone Warehouse about five years ago. And, and that brought exciting new opportunities in the richness of the data and actually also in some of the challenges of integrating the different data sets. But I think we recognized the value of the data early on. I was fortunate that the, the, the XCO of the time were always very you know, passionate about utilizing data. Uh, and that made it easier to galvanize support uh, and work with different stakeholders in the business. Well, that's a really interesting dimension to it because clearly part of the work you've been doing has been about helping the business to understand and absorb what data analytics can tell it uh, about markets, customers, et cetera. So as part of what you've done there, how have you helped to develop that maturity of understanding? I think a lot starts with listening to the different requirements of the stakeholders around the business and really thinking about what are the decisions that they're making and how frequently are they making them? And then demonstrating how the data can support them in, in that activity, either by making faster decisions or more accurate decisions. And I think that's how we built support for some of the different tools and approaches uh, over the years. And I think another piece was gradually improving the reporting within the business and really being able to democratize the insight. And as part of that, we shifted from the, the, the kind of classic uh, descriptive 
backwards-looking reporting and, and, and slightly uh, siloed reporting to more prescriptive uh, and predictive reporting, which also brought in more customer insight. And I think as part of that journey, we recognized the value of bringing together some of the analytics and the insight uh, competencies, and then also being able to link that to the business intelligence so that we could really quickly share and disseminate those insights across the business. Uh, now, you mentioned there about the structure that uh, you created and that, that exists inside the business. And we're always interested to understand the best way to try to keep data and the business aligned. So have you found that organizational structure is important? I think it is important, although it's particularly important, I think, in the, the, the ways of working. We found success in having analytics being really closely linked to the business and, and participate in um, the kind of day-to-day business activities to ensure that analytics can be more responsive both to the short and longer-term business challenges. We've also seen, as I alluded to a little earlier, that actually bringing in the the softer skills of the um, customer insights team and blending that with the more quantitative analytics created richer insights. Um, And and so putting those two things together was, was also really important. I think as the size of the data sets have grown, we also found it really important to collaborate closely with IT. And, and I think, you know, some organizations wrestle a little bit with whether data and particularly kind of the data management function is, is more of a business function or more of an IT function. And I think what's critical is that the data management function, regardless of where it sits, is well integrated into the business and understands the challenges of the business and, and uh, can then prioritize the activities effectively to ensure that it's supporting the business and also helping drive the quality of the data and some of the analytics. How close to board level do, does data analytics get within the business? So analytics reports into uh, the chief customer officer who sits on our executive committee. So it's getting good sponsorship there. And I'd say that it's always within Dixon's um, had been an area that's um, been recognized as, as delivering value. So on the flip side of that, if you were talking to a business who's thinking about its organizational structure, possibly to reorganize or transform, is there anything you would tell them to avoid I definitely avoid, I think, the temptation of decoupling analytics from the business, particularly as the data sets grow. Uh, it's tempting to see, I think, uh, aspects of analytics as an IT competence. And I think the danger is then you can get to a place where you're aggregating enormous data sets and building fantastic models. But the value only really comes if people are making better decisions. Uh, and if those models are being used efficiently and effectively. So I think, you know, that closeness of um, the analytics and insight to the business is, is that kind of first critical bit. And then the second, I think, is being able to blend some of those complementary skills and some of the softer skills of, say, customer insight and, and, and bring in, you know, the, the customer experience across uh, different touch points into that analysis. And then I think you start to get richer, more rounded analysis, which can support all areas of the business. Well, often the outputs from data analytics can be automation uh, to support business processes, real-time decisioning or personalization, many of those examples. And I know you've been working on some of those yourself. But what we're starting to see is that the activity 
of analytics is itself becoming more automated. Machine learning, exploration of data sets uh, is emerging quite strongly. What impact do you think that will have on the practice over the next few years? I think that's a really interesting one. Um, I think we're seeing that machine learning is becoming in many ways and many areas more accessible. There are some fantastic platforms out there which enable you to compare different models uh, and to be able to activate different models um, more easily than perhaps in the past. And so I think that's quite exciting for uh, the business because some of the heavy lifting and, and some of the data wrangling that was required in the past has been simplified. It's quicker to get outputs out now. And, and, and I think that slightly changes the focus of what um, uh, some of the decision scientists are doing. I think what's critical, though, is that uh, the analytics team maintain that commercial savvy, that commercial acumen to understand how this is going to really impact the business or support customers. And so I think no doubt the uh, depth and complexity of the um, uh, machine learning and AI will continue to uh, develop. But I think it's important that that kind of translation aspect isn't lost. At this stage, are you more of a business leader than a data leader? Do you reach a point where you let go of the, as it were, the hands-on practice, and now you're managing a, a function that happens to be about data and analytics, but you're not necessarily you know, an analytical practitioner? I, I think that's right. And I think certainly the amount of hands-on work I do is a lot less than it used to be. I've always been passionate about data. Um, I love to understand what the, 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 the build-up and the makeup of some of those models and some of those drivers. And, and it, you know, the, the world is changing so quickly in that space. It's, it's tough to stay abreast of um, all the changes. Um, and I think that's why, you know, I, I love forums like Data IQ. You know, they provide an excellent opportunity to be able to network and understand the things that are really working and, and, the, and the, the, the different tools and techniques that are adding the most value. Perhaps the most value I can bring is that translation aspect, though, to be able to really see and prioritize those opportunities, galvanize the business, and ensure that we maintain momentum on capturing value. And, and I think that's been one of the most rewarding things of the last few years, as we've pulled together those different competencies, we've really seen the value of data and analytics grow. You know, one of the benefits of, uh, of this space is you can measure a lot of it. You can see the value. You can see whether it's in you know, the, the customer experience improving or uh, the marketing effectiveness. Um, and so, yeah, that's, you know, th 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 that is very satisfying. So, Anthony, finally, this is an extraordinary year, and there are clearly going to be consequences that we're only just starting to understand and how they'll play out. And it comes towards the end of a golden decade, that really, that data analytics has been having. Do you expect that to continue, or will even this sector come under pressure as, of course, all businesses have to start to review what support they give, what they can invest in, and how they try to thrive as perhaps we return to some degree of normality. I think, sadly, there, there have to be cost cuttings everywhere. And in, in some areas, that will mean that analytics projects or some of those uh, larger CapEx initiatives will get cut. And hopefully, they'll, they'll get restarted again when, um, when demand picks up again. But I don't think there are really any areas that won't be affected. Um, and I think we will probably see a bit of a retrenchment to not just keeping the lights on, but, but perhaps a little bit less 
of the um, uh, of the pace of investment um, that we've seen, uh, and I'd suspect that you know that will probably go on for a little while uh, until demand starts to pick up again. I think during this 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 kind of crisis, that undoubtedly there's been some fantastic innovation, and and so it's it's not that things aren't progressing, and in in some areas I think that's kind of helped uh, you know break down some silos and 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 help people to you know work efficiently. Um, so the, 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 there are some benefits, I suppose. Finally, did you know that on average you will touch location-based data 42 times every day? Much of that will have been sourced from the Ordnance Survey. It has just relaunched the OS Data Hub to make exploration, access and licensing of its data easier and quicker. I spoke to Charlie Glynn and John Hoops about the thinking behind the relaunch and their hopes for what it will achieve. My name is John Hoops. I'm Developer Advocate at Ordnance Survey. And um, my job is to make sure that the the location data community in the UK has, a, has an easier time as possible adopting the OS Data Hub. Um, which is a, a new way to access Ordnance Survey location data. My name's Charlie Glynn. I'm a cartographer turned product manager. So I'm product managing these days and looking after a few of our new APIs that are now available via the OS Data Hub. First of all, you've relaunched the way in which OS data can be accessed. So can you tell us a bit about that and the thinking behind the new platform? On the 1st of July, so just over a month ago now, um, we launched the OS Data Hub, and this is the new platform for users to access our detailed location data. Um, on the Data Hub, you can download data sets. You can get API access and manage your access. We also have the ability for people to automate the download of their data for the first time. It supports both public and, and private sectors and will really you know, allow people to access our data in much easier ways, really improving the, the kind of user experience. The uh, existing way in which data was accessed, Charlie, presumably that was engineered a little while ago before everything got digital? Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's fair to say, David. And also, you know, we've got sort of three different access platforms as it currently stands. Uh, we've got one where users will go to access our premium data, one for our open data downloads, and then another for, for API access. And one of the really nice things that the, the OS Data Hub does is bring all three of those um, capabilities in, you know, kind of under one roof. John, just on, on that point, in terms of the thinking behind the new platform, is it in part a response to what you were hearing from developers and their needs? The answer to that question is, yeah, from what I understand, the, the team was listening to developers and data scientists and GIS analysts for years um, talking about ways they could do a better job, making it easier to access the data, easier to access the data that they need when they need it, uh, and easier to keep a really up-to-date um, source of location data. And as a response to that, the Data Hub has been in development for, what's it, Charlie, like well over a year now. Absolutely. Yeah, so we, you know, throughout that whole period, um, we trialed the Data Hub with the developer community, so a lot of what we've designed in is is based on their feedback. I guess they have experience of of other data hubs, of other ways that they are accessing data, um, and therefore you need to kind of be 
aligned to the experience they want to have with OS. I think that's absolutely yeah. right. Uh, I think we've seen lots of other companies um, really driving up the expectations of, of developers, you know, the sort of experience of what they come to expect from accessing data and using data. Um, so this is about, you know, Ordnance Survey really delivering our data in forms and formats that a developer, um, you know, would expect. Well, some of our community are familiar with OS data, not everybody is. What data sets can be accessed via the OS Data Hub? Fundamentally, Ordnance Survey is a data company. And it's a data company that's been around for over 200 years. And OS collects information about the geography of Great Britain. So we maintain a huge spatial database with over half of a billion features um, that we're updating on average 20,000 times per day. And we capture location information about just about anything you can trip or bump into in Britain. So that's every building, every road, every address, every waterway. And not, not only that, we, we collect the, the spatial or location data about these geographic features, but we also capture rich attribution, which is kind of the metadata or the... Um, the, the facts or attributes of each feature. In isolation, data sets can be useful, but they're really useful when they get combined with other data. Kind of brass tacks what is available on the Data Hub. We have a couple of different APIs that can be accessed as uh, cartographic base maps that have been de designed by Ordnance Survey cartographers like Charlie. Uh, we have vector tile maps that are a bit more customizable and have a bit more sophisticated interactivity possible. Um, and then we also have really detailed geographic features that have a lot of attribution, which can be really useful for, for data science and data analysis. So altogether, yeah, it's a, it's a compelling suite of tools or APIs to create interactive maps and answer questions to gain new location insights. And a lot of times the insights that you can draw about location depend on you having an understanding of specific attributes of features and how they might be distributed or I don't know how tall buildings might be the different character different characteristics of of each of these things is an important kind of part of their identity and is really useful to to data scientists and and web developers it definitely goes beyond just the the what you can see on the map there's a lot more um, metadata that's attached to every single feature that you see. Um, the attribution can be really useful for linking data sets together. So as well as you know using the Ordnance Survey location data, if you have a, an attribute that links to another data set, a third-party data set um, via you know a unique identifier, then you can join those data sets, uh, make that relationship, and really start to get some some greater insight from that data. And I think what we're seeing already is some really interesting and innovative uses of that data, which kind of becomes the, the, the layer of data on top of the map um, and the way in which people can build interactive cartography, dashboards and the like that really allow people to overlay layers of, of data and information. Clearly, especially in mobile and digital apps, we're seeing you know, a lot of change, a lot of uh, evolution of the services that do rely on location data. It is so cross-cutting in, in its usefulness and the really the aspects of life that it touches. Um, we, we did an analysis at OS a, a little while ago, and we estimate that the average British um, resident touches OS data 
42 times per day. So this is, wow. um, you, you wake up and you boil your kettle and utility companies are using uh, ordnance survey data. You uh, take a shower, you log onto the internet, you uh, try to get an insurance policy, your sat nav in your car, delivery companies getting parcels to your front door, emergency services routing and understanding where to, how they can provide the best service. Um, even just now in the in the pandemic, we've been adapting and, and trying to make sure that we can support the country's response to the crisis. We released a COVID-19 license, which had a, a really significant uptake of users that were trying to provide services that would help provide support to people who are sheltering or shielding, using our, our data science techniques to identify you know, where we could put test centers. It's it's really, really an exciting time. And, and the spatial data capabilities, spatial analytics algorithms, they're evolving so rapidly. One of the big pushes or big strategic shifts that Ordnance Survey is undergoing is looking forward and, and trying to place our services at the heart of what Great Britain looks like in the 21st century. Um, so as we're talking about connected transport networks and smart cities, um, unmanned autonomous vehicles like drones, the efficiency of our energy grids. We've got R&D initiatives in all those fields that are, are really trying to engage with private sector and public sector to, uh, to make sure that we make this transition to this connected society underpinned by authoritative location data. The COVID response is a, is a very powerful example of just how important location data is. So at a technical level, what is involved in accessing and licensing OS data through the data hub? We want to create a familiar experience for the developer. So uh, first thing, you would make an account with the OS data hub. Um, and through that account, you could access API keys. Now, there are there are two kind of types or or buckets of accounts. When you when you create an account, you can choose either the open data plan, which provides access to uh, data that is free for anybody, unlimited usage. You would get an API key, integrate that in, into your applications um, using you know standard mapping libraries like Leaflet or Mapbox. You could use libraries in in Python. You could integrate it in GIS software like QGIS or ArcGIS. You could also select the premium data plan, which provides you the same access to the open data products, which are always free and unlimited to use. But you also get access to some of our, our higher resolution location information. When you're a bit more zoomed in on the maps, you're going to see features and buildings that you wouldn't have necessarily been able to see on the open data plan. You're able to access layers um, that you couldn't access to get some, some more rich attribution. If you select that premium plan, again, you'll you'll create be able to create projects and kind of generate API keys that you would use in your apps. The the difference there is it costs a little bit of money for requests uh, for premium data, and we kind of keep a tally of how much you're using. And uh, up until you reach a thousand pounds, everything is actually free. Um, and then once you tick over that thousand pounds of premium data per month, then we would start charging for the uh, for the additional premium data. We also have a developer mode where if you're using if you're using premium data for development purposes, it doesn't count towards that threshold. So it's really designed to help anyone 
start using premium data with Ordnance Survey. And then really only once they start to achieve that scale or really unlock a lot of value in it that that their customers are demanding, then they they start paying do a big thrust behind the 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 launch of the data hub, which is to make it easier for different members of of the location data community in the UK to adopt ordnance survey data and ordnance survey data services. So we've launched the APIs with with a certain set of, of data available, but we're absolutely you know working with our community of users and listening and building out that roadmap. So you know we continuously improve um, what we offer. John, you were touching on there about you know when value starts to get created through the use of OS data, and of course, most digital apps, most services become part of an ecosystem, and there's a lot of data integration, a lot of data sharing across multiple stakeholders. How easy is that to enable and to build with OS data? This is a great question, and this is actually another. Uh, one of the mandates that Ordnance Survey got, or, or one of the mandates behind the launch of the Data Hub, and that's to really improve the freedoms to share Ordnance Survey data. Because a, a lot of our partners and a lot of our users take Ordnance Survey data, then do some kind of analysis with it or create some kind of a visualization, and then sell that on to their uh, customers. And um, in the past, the licensing process, we got some feedback that it was uh, at times maybe a bit challenging um, and a bit confusing. And so we made this shift, this really intentional shift to really streamline that process and and really enhance the freedoms to build on uh, ordnance survey data, to transform it, and then to share it on to their consumers. For many years now, I had a portfolio of free and open products called OS Open Data on the 1st of July, as well as launching the, the OS Data Hub. We also launched a new suite of, of open products, all geared to, towards, you know, allowing people to, to link and share more data, um, which is connected to that, that detailed ordnance survey geometry data. So some of that is the, the UPRN, the unique property reference number, which will enable specifically the, the land and property sector to start sharing information about buildings, about properties uh, much more freely and easily. And we have something similar um, for streets called the unique street reference number. And we also have, as well as data downloads, we're giving people API um, access to discover those relationships and connections between the different identifiers. Do you hope that this relaunch will trigger that level of innovation? And is there anything in particular that, that you maybe would like to see developed as a consequence? Definitely. This is another huge reason behind the launch of the Data Hub is to support the innovation within the location uh, location sector of the UK. And uh, so it's, it's really part of the broader strategic shift. Yeah, Ordnance Survey data already really underpins a lot of the products and services of many large organizations. But even still, we've been finding that what they've been showing a lot of interest in the Data Hub APIs because it makes their processes of using OS data a lot simpler. For example, the, the National Library of Scotland, they had a pretty technically intensive process of downloading a large data set, and then they had to set up for their base maps on their um, their map viewer. They have a really amazing repository of historical maps, mm-hmm. and there's a tool online where they can you can essentially look at a, a modern map and compare it with this 
older map. So they would download the the map data of the these contemporary maps, and then they'd have to set up a web server and put the data on the server, and then configure their app so that it could connect to that. And it was just you know a couple of days. They would only really have the time and, and bandwidth to do it every few years. And the day after the Data Hub launched, we saw that they had already integrated our Maps API. What had been a couple of days to do, they, they were able to do in a few lines of code. And on top of that, the advantage, additional advantage beyond time saved is that we're, we're tasked with keeping those, those maps up to date. So now National Library of Scotland doesn't have to bother with downloading and kind of setting up this big, this big complex process, but they also always have the most up-to-date maps serving onto their website. With that shift in licensing and with the shift in the ease of access, we're also seeing a lot of small businesses and entrepreneurs and, and individual hackers that weren't able to, they didn't have the time, they didn't necessarily have the knowledge to access OS data. Suddenly now, they're starting to look at it really closely and say, wow, this can be really useful for, for me. I can access this in a, in a way where I can just collect the data that I need when I need it and not have to deal with the rest of it. Opening up these data sets and, and getting easier access to our premium data sets is going to unlock a huge amount of economic value within, within Great Britain. We're putting a lot of energy into supporting sustainability initiatives within OS. This is anything from kind of like working out where the best place to put solar panels and wood turbines might be, um, how to improve the efficiency of transport systems, uh, how to make de better decisions around urban planning, um, how to make more accurate maps to uh, improve the efficiency of the way emergency services run. So, so yeah, we're, we're getting a lot of really positive early feedback and, and seeing a lot of really interesting users signing up. Um, and I, I know Charlie and I are both are really excited to see how this uh, evolves and affects the location, the location data community within the UK. And that's it for another episode. If you liked it, please link, like, and share. And until the next time, goodbye.